Thank you so much for coming out tonight, guys. Um, we really appreciate you coming and hearing more about all the different global careers and opportunities um, that are out there. Um, this is a collaboration between the International Relations Review and Global Insights, one of um, both of which are branches of Vuga, which is the Boston University International Affairs Association. So um, thank you so much for being here, and Peyton's going to take it away. All right. Um, do you want me to um, get started with like the openings that I prepared? Or? Sure. Yeah, sure. Um, awesome. So uh, just to sort of start off, I'm going to introduce each of the panelists um, and sort of um, give everyone an idea of um, where they're working right now, sort of what they've done in the past, um, and what areas um, they've focused in. So first we have um, Ambassador Vesko Garcevich. Um, he served as the Montenegrin Ambassador to NATO in Brussels, um, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the OSCE in Vienna, and to Austria, Belgium, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands. Um, he has participated in a number of international conferences, including German Marshall's Fund Brussels Forum, Munich Security Conference, and Halifax International Forum. He is an expert in the field of European security and is a professor at the Pardee School. Um, he teaches courses on diplomacy, multilateralism, and state building. Um, we have Miss Kim West, who um, will be here um, hopefully in a little bit. Um, she is a partner at Ashcroft Law Firm, and for over 20 years, she has been a prosecutor at the local, state, federal, and international level, and has assisted clients in a great number of areas, including government investigations, prosecutions, and enforcement actions, healthcare, United Nations and World Bank Ethics and Anti-Corruption Compliance, and many more. She served as a trial attorney at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and prosecuted Radovan Karadzic, who was found guilty for his major role in orchestrating the Bosnian genocide. And then we have Ms. Francesca Giovannini. She is the ex Executive Director of Managing the Atom at Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, as well as a non-residential fellow for the Center of International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University. She began her international career working for international organizations and the Italian Ministry of Affairs, leading projects targeting refugees and displaced persons in Turkey, Lebanon, and Palestine. Additionally, she served as strategy and policy officer to the Executive Secretary of Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty Organization, CTBTO, in Vienna, working to promote CTBT ratification. Um, so these are our amazing panelists that we have here today. Um, I don't know if you want me to get started on the questions or... Yeah, we can get started on the introductions and, and so on. Yeah, okay. Good. Awesome. So I'm just going to get started on the questions. Um, and we've sent them to you beforehand, so hopefully, um, you know, we'll just be able to get right into them. So um, we will just go in order of seating on the panel. So um, uh, Francesca, please share a bit about your current and past positions. What was your journey to getting where you are today? Yeah, I think it's a very important question because it's, it's much easier to make sense of your trajectory looking backward. But when you are actually living forward, you might feel a little bit uh, messy and uh, lost because so many opportunities will present, uh, you know, on your path. And particularly when it comes to international relations, I also studied political science all my life and international relations, both master and PhD. Uh, this is a career that you will have to build from the ground up. So you're not becoming a dentist, you're not becoming a lawyer. So you will have to really navigate based on your passion, your interest, and also the opportunities that really you will encounter. You will, you will decide what trajectory you, you will take. So my path has been quite unusual, I have to say. I've always thought that I, my dream was actually to work for the United Nations. And I got to the UN pretty early on in my career. I was 24 when I entered. 
And I was a junior political officer in Lebanon working for the UN resident coordinator at the time. And I, I felt that was, that was going to be it for me. I wanted to become an international civil servant with the UN. But remember, guys, the, trajectory, the career is never a linear uh, development, right? It's always a sort of windy road. And so at the time when I was in Lebanon, a lot of discussions were going on because the Lebanese government was particularly concerned about the potential spillover effect from the incoming uh, military intervention in Iraq. And there were a lot of discussions about weapons of mass destruction, and I didn't know anything about it. I, I thought that seemed a very important topic, but I knew nothing about it. And so for months, I actually thought about retraining myself, and eventually I decided to step out of the UN track, and I got a scholarship and went to study at UC Berkeley. My trajectory has always been very clear. I serve international organizations I, as an expert, uh, as an advisor, but I don't intend to have a, a career within these organizations because the bureaucracy is just daunting. And so I go back and forth normally from academia to international organizations and vice versa. Right now I'm leading a big nuclear research project at Harvard University and I've specialized in the, in the past five years on weapons of mass destruction, international security and nuclear weapons. And that really started that with the experience in Lebanon. I read the context and I understood that security became re really important after 9-11. And so you've probably all talked about the securitization of foreign policy. And so when you want to study human rights or climate change or development, there will always be a security consideration in any policy. And I just really wanted to train myself in that and just make sure that I was contributing to it. Excellent. Thank you. Um, Professor Garcevich, um, if you want to share a bit about your current and past positions and your journey to getting where you are today. Well, uh, 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 I would say, that, again, uh, uh, similar to Francesca, that my career definitely is not um, a typical one. It's a unique one. Uh, and I don't want uh, anybody of you to go through what I've gone through uh, because of the circumstances beyond my control. So I joined the service of one country. And without moving anywhere, I served three countries because my country ceased to exist in a bloody, uh, bloody civil war. So I, I had to sail choppy waters uh, until I came where I am now, or became what I was uh, when I was uh, when I was diplomat. So uh, you know, I joined the Ministry uh, of Foreign Affairs of former Yugoslavia, big Yugoslavia. I, you, you, I don't know whether you uh, know that part of the. Oh, 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 of history, but, uh, which uh, was very much engaged in global affairs, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs was uh, enjoyed a really high reputation globally. Uh, as, uh, as, I, as far as I remember, Yugoslavia was placed among 15 most influential countries globally at the time. Uh, and uh, in order to become diplomat, yeah, uh, people were not just um, selected to begin with that, but we had to accomplish diplomatic academy one year longer. Uh, like a post, uh, let's call it like a postgrad studies for us, which was like a postgrad studies, and only if you pass all the exams, um, exams including some exams or some courses that you are now taking, so you you will become eligible to be transferred from let's say probation to uh, to become uh, officers, foreign officers in the former Yugoslavia. The country was organized and the, the, the service was organized, but everything else. <laughs> After that, it was not. So I had the situation to swim up, the um, to swim upstream uh, several times. I will give you two examples. 
One of them is uh, when my current country, country that I represented before I came here, Montenegro, which was constituency of that uh, Federative Republic of Yugoslavia, was uh, arguing to regain its independence through uh, referendum independence. So I was directly involved in it as a diplomat who was arguing for that, though representing uh, at the time country uh, in which one of constituencies was against that. So I had to work against, let's say, against. Uh, definitely this move was not welcomed by big, big, uh, big powers, including this one, who wanted us to stop this from doing that. Because as I know how much you follow, at least in, in, in term, when it comes to the uh, practical, uh, practical, uh, comes to the life, when it comes to the life, then uh, countries uh, prefer status quo in international relations and they don't, they, they don't want any change to happen, particularly something which is not controlled by big ones. So we managed to do it and we succeeded. This is the one story. This is the first story. The second story is uh, promoting NATO membership. Oh, hello. I would say right timing. I'm just about to finish. <laughs> so yeah, sorry yeah. about Perfect that. Very good. Okay. So, and the yeah. second story is that I promoted NATO membership in the country. It is like a selling a product that nobody wants, or only few want. I promoted a NATO membership in a country that was bound by NATO just 11 years before, uh, or um, you know. Uh, we were all bid for membership to NATO, so it was not easy to travel and to be involved in a public uh, a public events like this one, talking to people in different corners of my country, including some small villages, uh, and having interesting discussions about what NATO did and what NATO is. So, but be ready, as I agree with you, and this will be my final point, be ready that uh, to follow what you feel inside is uh, um, your like a call of duty, which means what you need to do in your life. Thank you, Professor Garcevich. Now you are yours. <laughs> All right, um, everyone, please welcome Miss Kim West. Um, so, Kim, if you would like to share a little bit about your current and past um, positions and sort of what was your journey to getting where you are today? Sure. Uh, apologies. I have lived and worked in Boston for much of my life. You think I'd know not to drive here with the Red Sox games, though. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you, everyone. Uh, my name is Kim West. I'm a lawyer, uh, and I practice here in Boston at a firm. I've been I've been in private practice for a little bit over two years. Um, and much of what I do in my current practice involves international clients. Uh, I started out in law school. Um, wasn't really sure how I got there. I knew I was going to law school or medical school, at least my parents expected me to, so I ended up in law school. But in law school, I realized that I wanted to do litigation, uh, and I wanted to be in a courtroom. And um, if you know anything about um, litigation, you know the quickest way to get into a courtroom is to become a prosecutor. And so that's what I did. Uh, and after law school, I was in a DA's office for three for four years, and it's not because I had this great love of criminal law, it was because I wanted to be in a courtroom. But as I was there for a little bit, I realized that I was absolutely fascinated with the subject um, on both the prosecution side and the defense side. And so I stayed there for a bit, and um, the way prosecutions work in most states uh, on the local level is you have a DA's office, which is the local level, and then in Massachusetts you have an attorney general's office, which is statewide, and so I moved to the attorney general's office. And then above that, there's a, a U.S. attorney's office for each district, and there's one here in Boston. 
Um, and so I was at the Attorney General's office for a short time. And then uh, the DA who I worked with became the United States Attorney, which was very fortunate for me, uh, and he hired me. And so I was at the U.S. Attorney's office in Boston for about six years. And this was just after 9-11 happened, which uh, none of you will actually remember, but of course you know about it and you were quite small at the time. So um, what you might not recall is at, at, when this happened, the Department of Justice uh, told all its U.S. Attorney's offices to stand up national security units. And I went on the national security unit. And as a result, the work that I did naturally had an international component, whether I liked it or not. There was something about every case that I had, whether the targets were not in the United States, there were witnesses in the United States, the events didn't happen in the United States, there was an international component to it. And so that sort of started um, my love of this area. Now, I was doing criminal domestic law, so not international law, but criminal law. And one of the cases that I received at the time, um, the FBI came to us and said that there was a person who was pretending to be a refugee from the former Yugoslavia living north of Boston. And he came in um, under a visa purporting himself to be one. And we did some investigation. We discovered that he wasn't um, a refugee. And in fact, he had been a shooter at Srebrenica at one of the sites and had killed himself personally over 100 people. And so I was assigned to that case and investigated it. And ultimately, we found him, we prosecuted him, and the case went to trial. But in the course of it, because these events didn't happen here, they happened somewhere else, I traveled a lot to interview witnesses. And I went to The Hague to work with a tribunal there that focused on this. And I really became quite interested in all that. And so then I had two children who were so young they couldn't complain about moving. And so I applied for a job at the tribunal in The Hague. Um, and I got the job. And fortunately, the Department of Justice allows its lawyers to take a leave of absence for a tribunal for up to five years. And so I moved the whole family to The Hague. Um, and I was there for five years. And I prosecuted a number of people. But the, the main person I prosecuted was somebody named Radovan Karadzic, who was responsible. He was the political person responsible for the genocide. And he was ultimately um, convicted. So I came back to the United States. I went back to the U.S. Attorney's Office. And then I spent four years at Moore's Healy's office. I was the um, criminal bureau chief. And then I decided it was time to stop being a prosecutor because you never do the same thing over and over again. Uh, and I decided it was time to do defense work. And my old boss, who had been the U.S. attorney, um, had a firm. And the firm does a lot, a lot of international work. Now, again, this is civil, not criminal. But a number of our clients who are international um, people might be on the radar screen of the United States government. Or maybe, uh, maybe they don't want to be on the radar screen of the government or they have other interests in the United States, or we have clients who are sanctioned by OFAC and they don't want to be sanctioned by OFAC. So my attraction to the firm was that, was that it was so um, international. And as you will see, uh, if you pursue this in a legal career, that um, it's really the bigger firms that have international practices. We are a very small firm. We have five lawyers in Boston, five lawyers in Austin, and it's a particular niche because we are so sm small, but we do have a big international practice. So that is how I got here. What was the last part of that question? Um, but yeah, it was just um, what was your journey to getting where you are today? And that was my journey. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to throw it back to Francesca. Um, what kinds of barriers and obstacles did you have to overcome in your career? Well, see, 
first, there are uh, identity barriers, particularly for women, when you are deployed in the Middle East. I served in Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, uh, Egypt, uh, and Jordan. Um, and so the first barriers are obvious ones that exist uh, in many cases. So for example, you should probably look at, if you are interested in becoming a big high-level uh, diplomat for the United Nations, you should ask yourself how many female negotiators you have ever seen in peace processes around the Middle East, and the answer is zero. Because many of these countries do not like to uh, relate or uh, negotiate with women. And so most of the time, although you know I was the uh, political officer to the head of the UN operation in Lebanon, uh, in many meetings, for example, with the Saudi or the Emirates, I was actually asked not to enter the room. And uh, it sucks, and it, it, it makes you really upset. Um, but at some point, you know, you just need to focus on what's the best for the mission. And, and, and this particularly for women is very, very tough because you know you are competent, you know that you are there because you have an expertise, but in some cases you are just not, um, you know, welcome. And so the question that becomes, uh, especially when you are young and you want to succeed in what you're doing, think about, you know, the bigger picture, right? And my mentor always said to me, stuff in the Missouri then ended up leading uh, both the Iraq uh, mission of the UN and Afghanistan mission, he always said to me, remember Francesca that you are serving the organization and the mandate takes precedence over individual egos. And that for me was a very important point. What is the current challenge for me here? So when you move into national security, you work for, for uh, uh, big establishments, especially with nuclear weapons, you tend to actually meet and work with generals, military uh, guys most of the time, they have very specific background. And uh, um, there is a sort of like eco chamber when it comes to nuclear issues. So there is jargon used. Uh, uh, there's a very interesting article that was written actually by a female scholar arguing that the nuclear language is a very male language. We talk about penetration, you know, uh, deep missiles and so on and so forth. And that's pretty disgusting if you think about, you know, trying to diversify the field. So that's another point. It's like, how do women? create spaces in, in spheres that were traditionally dominated by a specific type of uh, people with a specific type of edu education. My answer to this, and I've come to this uh, later in the game, is that you have to be absolutely confident about the expertise you bring in. Because the moment that you yourself second guess who you are and the value you bring, you're out. And so there are, there are environments that are really, really challenging. And by the way, it's not only women, it's also minorities. Uh, it's also like, you know, people who are just not part of what is considered the dominant class of a specific sector. So it takes guts. And my number one recommendation to all my students is, look, no matter what you want to do in life, expertise is what's going to save you. If you know what you're talking about, people at some point will have to listen. Do not wing it, do not improvise it. So I think these are two challenges that for me remain pretty much obvious for, for women in international security. Thank you. Um, Ambassador Garcevich, uh, what sorts of barriers and obstacles did you have to overcome throughout your career? Oh, many of them, but I will, I will, I will list three of them. Uh, um, first, um, then my first posting was in Vienna, and uh, if you decide to be... Um, uh, or, or uh, if you decide to work in diplomacy, 
uh, in most countries, including the U.S., your first posting will be a consular posting, which means you are uh, posted in a consular department to deal with people. And then it includes a number of uh, tasks, but uh, what made uh, my life difficult at the time is uh, working in a difficult environment, actually working in under difficult circumstances, given that war was going on uh, in part of my, in my country, former country, Yugoslavia, and then you can imagine you have to deal with people who are affected by war. And you have every day, every day in your office, you have destinies. Uh, and you have to find a solution, creative solution, because there is no law. There is no regulation uh, that gives you a clear path forward, clear way forward, how to deal with that particular case, whether this particular person has the right to get passport or do something or not. Uh, in many cases, uh, it is given to you to figure out solution. And then also depends on you how you see the world. If you want to see the world narrowly, then you will uh, to protect yourself. There you will see problems everywhere and no solution anywhere. But if you want to help out people, then you will try to find solution by thinking about arguments that you can use if somebody uh, back home, you know, squeeze your hand, uh, uh, asking you why did you do, why you did what you did. This is the first case. The second is, you know, maybe later on when I got a little bit more experience, I represented as an as ambassador country that was called Serbia Montenegro, and what is difficult. Difficult in this is that they're representing a country made up of two constituencies which has different political foreign policy agenda. Completely different. One is for the West, another is for Russia. Another one is for one thing, another is. So, you know, it is like juggling all the time and uh, walking like a, um, a viral uh, and a uh, tightrope uh, and every day because you have to satisfy both constituencies of your country and to make them uh, uh, find uh, how you delivered, um, uh, what you delivered during your job, which uh, actually the day after day until the story was over, uh, it definitely, uh, you know, took a lot of my energy uh, and uh, how to say, ask for like a maximum of my intellectual capacity to cope with what of what was going on back home. So, and the third is something similar to what Francesca said, but in my slightly different context, is a representing a small country in international arena. Because I ended up representing a country that has less than a million people. So, uh, what you said about unrepresented groups, uh, it is, you can apply, just copy and paste and apply for small countries, and you will get the answer. So, uh, uh, the, the, the international, uh, global uh, global affairs uh, uh, is da are dominated go dominated by big ones. A big ones set a tune. They uh, they want you to play according to their notes, and so on and so forth. You have to learn that language, but also you have to understand that you have to something to offer to them, and that you need to be how to say uh, you need to follow your own agenda, your own interests. And coming back to your final point, just to uh, you know reassure what you said. Arguments. So whatever you work, argument is very important. Your argument and 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 using them rightly and your expertise uh, that opens the door. Because whether you come from a small country or underrepresented minority, if you have arguments in your hands, then nobody can like challenge your argument uh, and expertise. That helps a lot. Thank you, Ambassador Garcevich. And Ms. West, um, what sorts of barriers and obstacles did you have to overcome in your career? 
Well, I think I'm going to echo some of these same comments that you've already heard. Um, you know, in the first instance, I was in law enforcement for over 20 years. So you will not be surprised to know that law enforcement in the United States is dominated by white men, um, white middle-aged men. And when I started, I was not middle-aged. So that in and of itself is a challenge. But as Francesca said, uh, the way that you deal with um, that sort of challenge, if, if you're in a professional position, is you know your facts better than anyone else. And that gives you a leg up. But this, the second biggest challenge I would say um, I handled, and somewhat similar, was while I was at the tribunal um, for about one year, for an entire year, I cross-examined um, military witnesses. Uh, so they were mostly Bosnian Serb. Um, they were all men. They were all at least 20 to 30 years older than me. And I would say that they were pretty offended that a woman, particularly a woman of color, was asking them questions and really going at the lack of credibility of their answers. And again, in that experience, the, the best ammunition I had was to know my facts better than they knew their facts, which I'll tell you was very hard since they were in the war, they were on those streets, and I only read about it. But um, in those circumstances, you, if you know your subject matter better than anyone else, I think you will have the confidence to get over the challenge. All right. Thank you. And um, just going to switch things up a little yeah. bit. Um, we'll start again with you, Ms. West, um, for this question. How did your education prepare you for the field that you entered into? Um, so as I, I said in the beginning, I alluded to when I was in college, I, it, was, it wasn't like I wanted to go to law school. It was I was going to graduate school. I was either going to medical school or law school. And I did not really like science, so I ended up in law school. <laughs> While I was in law school, it wasn't like I particularly wanted to do criminal law. It was because I wanted to be in a courtroom, and I knew the fastest rule there was to become a prosecutor, and therefore I got into criminal law. So I have to say that it really didn't prepare me for the subject matter. Um, what prepared me was being sort of the, the lowest level in an office, sort of like being the grunt prosecutor and doing all the work that no one else wants to do. Like That's where I learned how to be a litigator and watching people. For me, it was really on the job. Thank you. Um, Ambassador Garcevich, same question. How did your education prepare you for the field that you're okay. in? I will be honest with you. When I was a student, you know, uh, if I can compare that time with old time and, you know, that education uh, with our education in the U.S., then I would say my major was journalism. Uh, my minor was international relations. I was dreaming to become a journalist. And it was my first job. I, worked. I had worked as a journalist for two years before turning to um, diplomacy. So, Though uh, uh, international relations were up somewhere there, uh, honestly, I didn't took it. Uh, when I was still, I didn't take it so seriously. So I was focused on another stuff that I, I projected myself in one direction. So when I came and when I ended up in working in the ministry, and first year, as I explained, we had diplomatic uh, academy. Then um, actually, that was instrumental for uh, my understanding of foreign policy and how, uh, how it works. You know, uh, it was like a good combo of uh, theoretical, uh, uh, say, uh, theoretical courses given by professors at the universities at that time in Yugoslavia, as well as practical work. Something that I see happening, for example, in our school, a combination between us what come from practice and some of my colleagues uh, who have a clear academic background. And that helped me a lot uh, throughout my career. 
Excellent. Thank you. And then, uh, Ms. Giovannini, um, how did your education prepare you to enter the field that you're in? Yeah, so I actually want to throw a little bit of a challenge to you guys. Um, so I think education is important, but I think the sequencing, when do you choose to study what is also important. So I I did my bachelor in political science because I thought I wanted to become an international civil servant, and I just wanted to understand the political theories that dominate uh, world affairs. Then I served for uh, four years uh, in the field uh, with the UN and with the Italian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and I became a bit uh, more acquainted with like humanitarian uh, interventions, humanitarian campaigns, human rights. And I decided then to go into my master's after my field experience, because at that point I knew exactly what I wanted to study. So there is an idea in the US that more or less you go to bachelor, master, boom, 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 one after the other, and then probably PhD. I didn't do any of this. I did my bachelor, I served the UN for four years and a half, I did my master's, then I decided to teach for a little bit at UC Berkeley, then I did my PhD at Oxford University, and then I went back to the field. And the point is, what education should serve you is uh, try to, once you know what interest you have, the next question you need to figure out is, how do you want to contribute to that question, right? And so having that as a guidance allows you then also to tailor your education specifically. Many of my students come by my office hours and they ask me, ah, Professor, how do I get to work for the UN? And I say, this is the wrong question. The right question should be, what do I want to do? What is the topic that interests me? And then find out what are the skills, the education and the organization that will actually make you, get you closer to the vision you have, right? So I think a master is essential. I also want to say this. And in fact, even more than that, at least in my policy field, if you want to actually to rate, to rise the level of director, for example, at the UN right now, or director for big international think tanks, you've got to have a, a doctorate. I mean, that's unfortunately becoming almost mandatory. But don't rush into this thing. Just get also the field experience that give you a better appreciation of the reality of what you're working on. If not, education becomes a bunch of abstract ideas. And then at the end, you leave, you, you leave your education even more confused than, than every, you know, that you've started. My last point, I teach at the Fletcher School. And what is interesting about the Fletcher School is I, I teach students who come from the field. They have three, four years of experience working for an NGO, working in diplomacy, working for a permanent mission somewhere. And then they come and they're much stronger in what they know they want to study. They're very selective. They actually, it's a no-nonsensical approach. They take classes because they know what the next step is. So education is important, but sequencing is also important to me. Excellent. Thank you. Um, we'll start with um, Ambassador Garcevich on this question. Um, what are the most important things that you've learned from working in your field? Uh, besides the field experience, it's like fully subscribed with yeah, because uh, I think the field experience is something that uh, uh, helps you understand the world better and you understand that outside of uh, outside your bubble, whether it bubble is your home, your family, uh, your university, there is another world and that world operates under different premise. Uh, sometimes you have to compromise uh, some of your norms and principles if you want to work in there. It is not clear cut, not like a white and black or uh, whatever. 
So simply you need to understand that uh, that outside world is different and you have to accommodate to this. Uh, social intelligence, when it comes to uh, uh, my work, at least my job of diplomat, definitely you need to meet with people. You need to be, or to see, you need to be, uh, you need to accept this as part of your job, that you are a good communicator, that you, you can approach people, that you can talk to them, that you can feel uh, comfortable doing that. Uh, secondly, the uh, appreciation for difference and for others and diversity. Right? Particularly if you work in multilateral, multilateral diplomacy, for example, in the EU, and I, I spent most of my years in diplomatic in diplomacy, diplomacy working in multilateral diplomacy with different people from different parts of the world um, and uh, different cultural backgrounds. So uh, appreciation for difference, understanding who they are, why they that do what they do, uh, and to some extent through that to understand their logic and the arguments and interests, uh, if possible. I think this is what I find um, um, uh, most important, what I learned from my job or my career. Thank you. Miss um, West, same question. What are the most important things that you've learned from working in your field? Um, again, it's sort of a similar theme, but applying it to crime. I've tried a lot of cases, and I've walked into a lot of cases, particularly when I was much younger, thinking, oh, this is clear. The police report says all this, and those people said that, so they're guilty. It's black and white. It is not black and white. There's nothing about it that's black and white. There's always a second side to a story, even where you have witnesses who will say one thing. And I think I've I learned that early on. I'll tell you, I didn't quite believe it. It took many years of doing this, but every situation is gray when you have more than one person who's making observations from it because everybody sees things differently. And I, I think, you know, I, I came to that realization uh, much later in my career, but it is a, it's a strong position to come from. It's a strong position not to be so black and white about everything and understand that gray exists and it would just naturally exist even in prosecution. Thank you. And Ms. Giovannini, um, same question. Important things that you've learned from working in your field. Yeah, so I, um, I would say probably two or three things. The first one is uh, uh, this: your generation is a generation that will have to confront multiple complex emergencies, right? Um, so you are, a, you are a generation that will really have to face, you know, big question of the environment, coupled with pandemics, migrations, you know, economic issues, authoritarian uh, regimes rise and so on and so forth. So, and, in, and we all hope um, to have an impact and somehow to, you know, try to promote social change. So the first thing I, I've learned in my career is that social change is really difficult and is very, very slow. And you will spend years wondering whether what you are doing actually has even one single bit of impact. Social impact, social change is often invisible, is something that is very gradual, that might occur in a sort of very long period of time that requires so many different conditions. So it is very easy, particularly in, in a career, in international career, to lose hope and think, oh my God, you know, becoming skeptical. What I, so what I learned is, look, uh, social change is difficult, but there are, I think, ways uh, uh, where we, we can actually 
where we all can contribute to this. And I've come to appreciate a lot the belief that collective thinking and collective working is actually really important. You know, when you're young and you try somehow to excel in your career and try to, you know, uh, be the brightest in, in order for, you know, people to notice you, and, and it's fine. But the reality is the social change happens when you're actually able to work successfully in a team. And when your, your mind is, uh, you know, aligned with others that are trying to go in the same direction. So believing in teamwork is really, really important. And it's something that is not so obvious, particularly at the beginning of, of uh, one's career. Last two points. Um, I've come to realize with a great uh, sadness that some problems are solvable, but many, of our, many others are just manageable. And these pro problems will continue, will endure. We have no perfect solutions, and the solutions we have are imperfect. Um, and so how do we manage living with imperfect solutions? I think is a very important uh, part of working in an international career. And the final point that I want actually to back to what Ambassador said, power matters in international affairs. Power is projected in many different ways in uh, this sort of fantastic protocols that diplomacy uses. Uh, there are reasons why certain people enter through the door first. Uh, people who sit on the right, they matter more than people who sit, sit on the left side. And there are protocols, right? Power projects uh, through various ceremonies and protocols. Uh, but these protocols matter, and knowing what that means is really, really important, how to navigate that. So, so you need to take advantage of people like ambassadors here who actually know how the protocols work, every single organization has its own, uh, but don't underestimate this. Um, and, and a power can be projected in very, in very different ways, and you need, to, you need to ask yourself, especially in the, in the organization you're going to work with, so who... Who actually owns power? Who is the central influencer in that specific organization? And then trying to work with this specific center. Um, I, it took me a while to recognize that even if you have big titles, you don't necessarily have power. Uh, but it's important that you come with that understanding. Organizations are power structures. Thank you. And we'll move into our final question, which is sort of a two-part question. Um, and we'll start with Ms. West. Um, what advice would you offer to students interested in pursuing a career that is in the international relations field or one that is similar to your own um, or both, I guess? Okay. I've said two things. And I say this from the perspective of a person who is born here and only holds a U.S. passport. If you have the ability to get something other than a U.S. passport, you should try and get it because it'll expand your job opportunities. As an American, there are limitations as to the jobs that you can have in the field of um, international criminal law. Um, and, and I might not be here right now. If I had another passport, I'd be working somewhere else. The second thing is, if you know another language other than English, or you have any interest in learning one, do that. The working languages in the United Nations are English and French. And if you know both of them, you're in a much better position for getting a job in an organization like that than you would be in another organization. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Giovannini, same question. Um, what advice would you offer to students interested in pursuing um, a career in the international relations field or one that's similar to your own? So uh, the first thing I would say is uh, feel free to bother people 
more than uh, you know it, because I, I'm sure you guys are very reluctant to you know send an email out or try to contact someone but I think you should really volunteer and just say look I would like to have experience uh, you know with you working on a specific field or a specific publication would you consider me and many times you know this uh, upfront question normally gets a nice reaction because we we all want to see people really committed to, to the field and so the first thing is don't be reluctant and don't be don't be hesitant um certainly in my field you don't go straight so the nuclear the nuclear field in particular is a field that is uh, uh that requires a certain type of expertise so after the bachelor, if you decide that you want to work on nuclear strategies or nuclear policies or whatever that is, there are specific courses and specific institutions that offer just that. Nuclear, though, also has an advantage, which is it might be difficult to enter, but then it's much easier to navigate because it's a very small community. And so we all know each other. It's much easier to find jobs at, at that point. I subscribe completely to what Kim has said. If you, by the way, know today either Russian, Chinese, or Iranian, you are already one step ahead in my field because everyone requires a certain type of languages. And of course, it's, it goes in phases, right? Now we have this Iran crisis, so everyone wants to, to read Farsi. Um, but it's important that you diversify this. And, uh, and then and that's certainly education in my, in, in, in my field is really, really important. And field experience, it's very difficult to get it because normally to work around nuclear weapons you, or nuclear issues, you need security clearance. But there is no need to go on that path. You can actually just have internships uh, with institutions, international think tanks, research center. They can actually help you get a, a, you know, a foot in the door. Thank you. And Ambassador Garcevich, um, what advice would you offer to students wanting to pursue a career that is in international affairs or um, one that is similar to your own? Uh, I would say more or less the same stuff uh, for every, any, any career. First of all, uh, there is no shortcut to success. If you think that you will get a dream-like job once you graduate from university, then you are on the wrong side. You, know, <laughs> you need to be ready to be patient and to try and to try and to try. You need to strategize as you as you have heard already to so strategize your way ahead which means to understand what you want to achieve and to take any opportunity that keeps you close or in the loop or floating in the air uh, in the air close to what you want to do uh, in the future uh, and experience matters when you graduate from university then uh, what matters is your experience and you are still young that you may change jobs that you know your horizon is open it's not like mine so therefore you know if you if you do something for two years you can transit from there to another job but your experience experience that you gain you are working in some in the field you can use in another field this is the first point the second point is don't be disappointed once you get a job in what you what you are going to work up in fact I had a student, a very good student, who is now in State Department. And I told him, you know, my first uh, working day in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, they didn't even know that I'm coming. They didn't even, even have a chair for me, let alone a desk. I was sitting outside in the lobby. They gave me something to read, just, you know, to do something, you know. Because, uh, and then, if, you know, once you, if you're a graduate student and you did nice policy papers or research papers, 50 pages, 30 pages, and then you all of a sudden uh, you, uh, the, uh, you are giving to do something that's so simple that you think, you know, did I, did I graduate because of this? Uh, you know, uh, this can be done by anybody. 
So, but just be, don't, don't be disappointed. Be patient. Uh, time work uh, for you and your chance will come. And I'm sure that you will know how to seize the opportunity. All right, excellent. Well, thank you so much for answering um, my questions that I have for you. I'm now going to open it up to some questions um, that we may have on the floor. Um, if you want to ask a question, I would just ask, you know, once I call on you, just say your name, uh, maybe say what you're studying, and then feel free to ask your question. You can address one of the panelists. You can address any of the panelists, all of them. Um, so uh, if you have any questions, please feel free to ask them now. Um, Barrett. Um, yeah, I'm outside of IR, but also in political science and rights and labor. Um, so my question is, I think in like recent years, especially, there's been like a huge uptick in what's expected of people like professionally and like how much time you commit to your job and like your career and everything. And my question is like kind of twofold, like A, how do you separate, especially like really heavy subject matter, like world security and like human rights and like genocide, how do you separate that from like weighing down your like personal everyday life? And then secondly, like how do you balance like or how do you strike a good work-life balance with like your career and also like your family and your personal life? Um, excellent. Is anybody prepared to answer that right now or um sure, Miss Wester? Um, I don't think you can separate it. I you just can't. Uh, in, in the sort of work that I have done, it's devastating work. And it doesn't mean like I walk out and I'm like all ready to go to a soccer game. It, it's hard to separate it. You get used to it and you compartmentalize things because you have to have a personal life and you have to have a professional life. Um, as to that balance, I have to say that the last 18 months has really thrown a wrench into all of this. Um, I think the... Uh, acceptance of work-life balance has absolutely changed in the legal field, at least it has. Um, there's more flexibility. Um, I'm not sure that we ever would have gotten here had it not been for COVID, but I'm really hopeful that the balance is uh, going to get better and better. And I'll, I will say this, I, I've had the great opportunity to work um, in an office where the, in, the almost the entire hierarchy was women at the attorney general's office. And that was the best work-life balance I ever had. I mean, they, the women there just had an understanding of the obligations that all the women in the field, and, and, and no offense to the men who also may have children, but it's just practical that women have more burdens when it comes to family. And being in an office like that was refreshing. Thank you. Um, Ms. Giovannini? Yeah, I... So I don't want to lie here, right? So I work miserable amount of hours. Um, I, I have to be honest. And I have a sense of guilt for my partner, which has been following me around for the past 10 years. Um, and to have an international career requires sacrifices. One is moving your family around. So I've moved, I don't know, four or five times. Um, and so that, that, that brings cost to your relationship, to your family, and so on and so forth. Um, so partly is, this career is going to test you very quickly. Do you really care about what you're working on? In some, some, in some experiences, the answer is going to be yes. In some experiences, the answer is going to be no. It's not worth it. Um, so it but, but I think it's, it's important also to have, a, to, to actually discuss how you work. 
is much more difficult, or at least my experience, has been much more difficult to work and log hours after hour after hour in a job where I couldn't see the impact of my work. When I was in the field, the field, particularly when you are a UN civil servant or you, you are a humanitarian officer, you have refugees, these kind of things, this requires an enormous amount of involvement. But it also gives you so much emotionally, right? You are right there in the field. Another thing is when people ask you to spend 14 hours drafting a UN report that no one will read other than diplomats who are actually just skip, you know, to the very last page or at the conclusions. So there are volumes of work, but I think the, the mission is different. There will be a point, Barrett, where you will be asked to work a lot. I think it's important not to shy away from this and not kill ourselves. This is a difficult career, a career that needs to be built from the ground up. Again, you are not becoming a dentist. So that will require the extra mile. And, uh, and always think about why you have chosen this in the first place. Thank you. And Ambassador Garcevich. Oh, uh, what to add to what uh, uh, you have heard, I think that, uh, um, first of all, be aware of uh, be aware of one simple thing: uh, the higher you are, the less you are in control of your time. Mm -hmm. Though you think it, it goes the other way around. Once you become like a senior ranking official of your country or senior ranking official anywhere, doesn't mean that you control your time. Actually, you are under control. So, and you are working more and more, more and more. People call you over the weekend. Uh, you know, uh, you cannot finish your lunch because of some urgent calls from the government or from this and that. So, if you are ready to, uh, if you're ready to do so, if you're ready to go through it, if you're ready to, uh, to be involved by in that, uh, like that, then, uh, um, then, uh, then you are on a good side, which means that you can, you can work at least for some time, uh, uh, uh like that. Um, I agree with, uh, with what, um, uh, my colleagues have said, uh, very important is your, who your partner is. Uh, when you are young, uh, things look different. You are alone, you can plan your time, you can work 24-7 if you want, you know. And so, but once you have like a, a, some people with you uh, and your family, uh, including children, if you have children, then uh, that, make, uh, that makes things uh, look different. I will give you an example, example of my youngest daughter. Uh, um, in her third, uh, in, in a primary school, you know, when uh, we, when I moved to Brussels, uh, it was her third grade, third grade, third school, third school system, third language. Mm -hmm. So she started with German, then we came back home, then uh, uh, she had a problem uh, with, uh, with kids mocking her accent of, of her native language. So then after that, uh, and after that, uh, uh, I got posted. Uh, to NATO, and then um, um, uh, she was enrolled in American school in, in Brussels. So you see, a couple of days ago, I asked her, we had discussion at home, I asked her whether what she thinks about that. I would say that her life from today's perspective, but uh, she appreciates, I think that she appreciates the way how she learned things that other students or other, other people of her age uh, didn't have chance to go through, but doesn't mean that every 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 kid 
uh, every daughter, every son uh, think, this, think the same way. Thank you. Um, do we have any other questions? Sydney. Um, this is a question for all the panelists. Um, it seems that in all of your careers, you often have to converse um, or deal with uh, people that have very opposite views to you. How do you sort of manage that style of interpersonal communication? How do you manage um, what can often be hostile or negative conversations? Um, keeping in mind your own sanity, um, but also um, ensuring that you get the best work done in those conversations. Excellent. Um, Ambassador Garcevich, we can start with you. Uh, uh, first of all, you need to keep yourself under control and emotions are not your ally when you do business. Uh, I think it looks a hope in every business. So, uh, as I said, uh, in many situations in my life, I get to talk to people who had opposite uh, uh, opinion and in some cases were opposing what I'm going to say, and I knew that. I remember, and uh, now I can say, former French ambassador who was telling me uh, once that uh, Montenegro would never become independent because France is against that. Just three years after, he could congratulate. Uh, so that's a part of the game. Part of the game. Uh, and then if you, at one point, feel like uh, something coming from inside that you cannot control, then I would advise you to, to, to ask for a pause and to walk out uh, and to say either I go to take a glass of water or do whatever you think is necessary just to come down and to come back. Thank you, uh, Ms. Chivanini. So I'm going to give you a very practical answer. I actually have a coach. And, uh, and I'll give you an example of why I want to work with a professional coach on this. Uh, so I, I, I'm now in charge of a big research project called Rethinking Nuclear Deterrence, which is basically going really after the backbone of the American nuclear security, the idea of nuclear deterrence, nuclear weapons, and so on and so forth. And this is a project that is bringing me to discuss the concept with the militaries and, you know, like strategic command and, and nuclear experts that have done their own career defending that concept, right? So it's obvious that once you try to rethink the concept like this, you will encounter a lot of hostility, a lot of resistance. One thing I didn't want to do is uh, being intimidated or second-guess myself. And I wanted to go with a specific a type of communication that was accommodating, but it wasn't second-guessing myself. So that I come from a position of calmness, but also authority. And I realized I didn't have the skills uh, to do that uh, by myself. So I wanted professional help. And I actually, um, I, I, I thought actually, I, I, I mean, I, I congratulate myself a little bit about this decision because it takes, it takes humility also to say, look, I'm in a position right now where I don't have enough skills to do this. So I need to find somebody else that can help me with this. Too often in my view, women try or think that we need to, to be able to do something. Well, actually, well, maybe you have never been educated to negotiate a certain type of language. And so looking for help, and my coach is a, is a woman as well, um, is, is very important. So there are certain things where you need to find help somewhere. And, and it's part of your job as a professional to think, I don't have that skill, but I need to find somebody that does have it. Thank you. And Ms. West? 
Well, I think that's great advice. I'm dying <laughs> to take that advice. That's <laughs> terrific. And very practical. Um, so I'm a, a lawyer, and my field is an adversarial one. So that's all that I do. Um, but lawyers have uh, professional ethical rules, and part of those rules are to have these conversations in a civil manner. Now, all lawyers don't follow them. But as a, it's my ethical obligation to hear their position, and here's mine, and we have to fight it out. But um, something that we all brought up earlier, I think the, your best friend, your best ally in all of this is knowing your facts better than anyone else. And his facts may be different, but you've got your facts, and you just stand behind them. Thank you. Um, any other questions? If there are any more at this time, we'll take one more just in the interest of time. All right. Um, if not, then I will pass it back to Bridget and Josh just to close things out. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming, guys. Um, we are so thankful to have you here and for all the great questions. Um, we hope you have a really great night. If you're interested in coming to more Global Insights meetings, um, they are at 6 p.m. every Wednesday. Um, also, if you're interested in learning more about the IRR, feel free to reach out to Josh and I. Um, but thank you so much for being here. We'll see you in the next time. Thank you. Thank you.